Performance Podcast from Bottomline Technologies. Greetings and welcome to the Payments Podcast. This is the second in a series of episodes analyzing the findings gleaned from Bottomline's recently released 2023 Business Payments Barometer. Today's episode will deal with the fraud section of the report. The barometer is Bottomline's flagship research project. And before we dive into some of the key findings, a little background. The barometer started in 2016 as a snapshot of the business payments industry in the UK. Over time, the depth of that research grew. And last year, we expanded the survey to include businesses in the United States, interviewing 800 financial decision makers in each country across a range of business size and areas. This year's research was conducted by Ipsos for bottom line between February and March. We're going to unpack some of the key findings here from a report that truly captures the sweep of issues in the post-pandemic business payments industry. On a very general level, despite an uncertain economy, ever-increasing fraud, and a payments landscape in flux, companies on both sides of the pond appear to be resilient in weathering the storm. They have a good handle on their cash management and feel optimistic about experimenting with new payment types changing payment terms, and looking for ways to better protect their business payments. They also seem to have a good handle, but a lot of concerns on fraud and financial crimes are topic today. For example, top-level findings between both countries are quite similar. Let's take the U.S. angle in in the interest of time. Um, The total number of U.S. businesses experiencing payment fraud is consistent with last year's results, about 35%. Medium-sized companies saw a decrease from 42% to 30% year-over-year. Enterprise-level companies, however, reported an increase from 32 to 46% fraud incidents. Total losses rose significantly. Between last year and this year, U.S. businesses added $64,000 to their annual fraud total, a 21% bounce. Good news among the medium-sized category where annual losses dropped 37%. Large enterprises, on the other hand, rose $177,000, a jump of 43%. So that's the report. We've assembled an impressive panel of subject matter experts here at Bottom Line to discuss it, each with a specific area of expertise in the fraud and financial crimes area. A note first on how this will be structured. I'll cover the data points for each of our guests' area of excellence and ask them to comment. At the end, I'll ask each of them to draw their own conclusions about the future of fraud detection and mitigation. So as I said, we have three guests from our London office. We have Senior Product Manager Mark Bish, who specializes in overlay services such as confirmation of payee for bottom line. Mark, welcome. Thank you. And then across the channel to the east, I believe that would be, we have Rude Grotens, who is the head of our solution consulting for cybercrime and fraud risk management. Um, Rude is a specialist in insider threats. And then we will come back to the States with Christopher Goethe, Risk and Fraud Prevention Officer at Bottom Line Technologies. So, Mark, let's start with you. Unlike the U.S. where insider fraud is the top concern, external cyber attacks cause the most worry for U.K. corporates at 72%. APP fraud concern came in at 60%. 39% of U.K. businesses said they'd been hit by payment fraud over the last 12 months. Large companies are more at risk than small and medium-sized companies. My question to you, Mark, is on that APP fraud number. Um, We know it's been a scourge to businesses and consumers in Great Britain. And why has that been the case, in your opinion? And tell us about confirmation of payee a little bit. I think the first thing to to note is that the numbers are going in the right direction. 
So last year, uh, 2022, we saw a 17% reduction in, in APP fraud. There was a high the previous year of 583 million. So it's down to 485. So obviously clearly going in the, in the right um, direction from, from our perspective. Um, when you dig deeper into that, the reduction uh, in that overall fraud value is, is driven by personal banking. So that actually went down by 19%. Although strangely, the number of frauds went up by 6%. Um, fraudsters are still continuing to exploit the same sort of channels. So um, online purchases, online dating, uh, advance fees for things like holidays, uh, high value goods. Um, but maybe it's that they've been a little bit more cautious in terms of the um, size of the payment that they're looking for to, to maybe not trigger uh, people's suspicions in quite the same way. Uh, in terms of uh, business-initiated payments, they've actually remained static. There were 77 million last year and the previous year. Um, and still one of the biggest uh, scams that we see out there is around invoice or, or mandate um, scam, which is where the criminals pose as a supplier, for instance, uh, and try to um, convince um, the, the customer that their uh, account details have changed. Um, so um, because these are generally quite high value payments that's quite a lucrative um, channel from a fraudster perspective um, for both channels whether you're a consumer or business confirmation of payee is a simple but effective service and we can see it's working because clearly we've seen that reduction that 19 or 17 percent reduction overall uh, in fraud last year and i think most people uh, will have used it by now um, whether they make it a payment through their internet banking themselves or, or a banking app on their phone. And it's that process that confirms that the name you've been given is the same as the, the name on the account. Um, but it does a bit more than that. It, it prompts you to consider why you're making the payment. So there's a number of screens that you go through with challenges uh, and what you know about the person or the business that you're paying. And, it, and it's there to try and make you think about why you're making that payment. Is there any risk around it? But I think that's where the challenge lies as well. From a consumer perspective, fraudsters use emotional levers on consumers to encourage them to ignore the best efforts by the bank. Um, so, you know, the bank's trying to encourage them to consider the risk, but they'll put pressure on them to, to try and get them to bypass that. So things like, you know, last few remaining 70% discount today only from a dating perspective, um, you know, I've been robbed. Can you send me some money? I need to pay this bill because of X. Otherwise, X is going to happen to me. Um, things like uh, prepayment fraud, pay your, you know, half price holiday if you pay a deposit today. There's all sorts of different things that they use to try and influence people to not think properly about why they're making that payment. And payments as well. Um, from bank to bank where the um, recipient bank or perhaps the bank that's initiating the payment aren't part of the confirmation of payee network, they're becoming increasingly more risky. Fraudsters are able to exploit the fact that there's not any way of checking the account details because both banks aren't within the confirmation of payee network. So the continued drive by um, the PSR, sorry, the Payment Services Regulator, um, to, to drive and extend the reach of, of confirmation of payee is, is key, really, from that services perspective. For our businesses themselves, um, direct access to COP is often limited. So uh, a small number of people who have access to business banking may be able to access confirmation of payee through the, through the bank's um, uh, business banking page. 
if you're a small business, that's perhaps not so much of a challenge because you tend to have a small number of people, a small number of changes, and people tend to have multiple roles within that kind of organization. But for a large organization, I think that's quite problematic. You know, one-off payments via a business banking, probably not too much of an issue. But if you think about high volumes of payments, particularly via backs to new customers, that's that's a real challenge that they have. I mean, ideally, they want to be able to verify account holders at the point they capture them or where they update them while they're still uh, in contact with the customer. Uh, and the reason for that is that's the cheapest and most cost-effective place to, to correct any issues that you might find. They want close to 100% data coverage, uh, and they'll be able to identify suspicious behavior sort of right at the start of the process before anybody really gets um, sort of onto their books. So these overlay services, the more I research this, are, are incredibly important. And I also know from talking to the gentleman on this uh, on this podcast that technology is going to help, but is not the silver bullet. But Mark, talk a little bit about the next steps for confirmation of payee in the UK and a little bit about the importance of these overlay services like COP. I mean, the, the key player from... Uh, all of us within the confirmation of payee network is is the payment services regulator and, and, and Pay UK. Um, October last year, we had uh, about 92% coverage of accounts that are addressable by faster payments. Um, it's a mandate. So by October this year, a further 32 uh, banks will have joined. So that will take us close to 90 banks participating in confirmation of payee, 99% coverage of faster payments and then there's up to 400 more mandated to join by october next year so so that's one of the key things i think in terms of the effectiveness of the next steps uh, from a confirmation of payee point of view and i know there's also consideration around an awful lot more payment services providers and how this service might work for them so there may not be directly banks but there may be benefit in them joining the confirmation of payee network to to um prevent fraud around payments that are made to and from themselves as well. Um, I think as well, the broader use of the service by businesses, I, I mean, I mentioned in my previous few sentences around the fact that um, businesses need to use it at a point of application. But I think anywhere they're accepting payment details, um, they need to be using something like confirmation of payee to protect themselves. And, and that's something that we are enabling for our customers through bottom line payment services, that they're able to use our confirmation of payee service to do exactly that. Um, I think as well, the extension of confirmation of payee to cover payers, um, so direct debits is going to be essential too. We're putting an awful lot of effort into preventing fraud between banks, bank-to-bank -bank payments. Um, I think extending that service outside of that channel is, is really important. We're going to squeeze fraudsters away from that area. They're going to go more into the other marketplaces, into the other channels, and we need to protect them too. Rude Grotens, let's move on to you. Let's talk about insider fraud. 73% um, of US companies have seen an increase in insider fraud, 53% in the UK. No matter how you slice it, those are pretty dramatic findings, Rude. Um, why are they so concerning and what do you think is fueling this rise in insider fraud? Yeah, John, um, these numbers are really concerning. Uh, but what worries me is that they are probably just the tip of the iceberg. Um, the thing with insider threats is that they are often hard to prove uh, and people might suspect something is going on, but without uh, solid evidence. 
um, they underreport it, or even worse, they don't report it at all. And that's what makes it so difficult to grasp the extent of the problem, because you don't know what you don't know. Um, and when we talk about insider threats, some of these actions happen unintentionally, you know, for example, through human error. And some are done on purpose, and then we are talking about insider fraud. And in that context, people tend to think often about financial theft only, but it's important to understand that it's not just about uh, stealing money. Uh, insider fraud also includes well, unethical actions like uh, leaking or stealing sensitive data, such as uh, uh, home addresses or, or email addresses. Um, and then the second part of your question, John, was what's fueling the rise in insider fraud? Well, what I always find helpful uh, in structuring uh, an answer is, is uh, Cressy's fraud tri tri triangle. And as you know, uh, Donald Cressy, uh, an expert in crime, developed the fraud triangle in the 50s, in the previous century, but it's still relevant today. So Cressy identified three factors that contribute to an individual's likelihood of committing fraud. And these are pressure, opportunity, and rationalization or justification. And there are two factors that we can't easily control, and, that, and those are pressure and justification. So when individuals face uh, pressure in their personal lives, it can push them towards committing fraud. Um, and consider the ever-increasing cost of living, which makes life challenging for many people. So financial strain may create a strong temptation to engage in internal fraud activities, and in their minds, it might even justify uh, their decision. So um, alongside pressure and justification, there must also be an opportunity for fraud to occur. And, and let's take the shift to remote work as an example. There are more opportunities for fraudsters to take advantage of the situation without usual oversight from, from managers or colleagues. And that makes it easier for bad actors to commit internal fraud. So um, fighting against insider fraud is all about taking that opportunity uh, away. And that means uh, catch insider fraud early and shut it down immediately. Yeah, and, and another concerning stat route, only 47% of companies surveyed use automated employee behavior monitoring to detect suspicious behavior. How important would that be? It just sounds like a, a, a huge number. And how could um, such a, a monitoring system like that help mitigate insider fraud? Yeah, to me, that's really a shocking low percentage, John. Um, as you know, in my work with uh, uh, financial institutions and corporates. What always surprises me is how many corporates believe that just uh, having separation of duties is enough. Uh, they don't see the need for employee monitoring because uh, often they rely on, for example, a 4i four, four security principle that divides tasks and responsibilities among different people. Uh, to make sure no single person has full control over a process or a system. Uh, but here's the thing, John, uh, bad actors who want to commit fraud can still find ways around the separation of duties. Uh, just a couple of examples I've seen in the field. Um, 
they might team up, team up with others who have access to different parts of the process or system. So this is collusion between insiders. Or they could also exploit weaknesses in the system or, or use their expertise to get to sensitive information or systems. Um, and you know what, a, a very famous insider fraud scenario, that is uh, employees who still have access to critical systems or information from their previous roles, even if they don't need it anymore in their new positions. Well, don't get me wrong, uh, separation of duties is important and it should be part of a bigger approach that includes other measures like uh, background checks, employee screening, training programs, and, and raising awareness among employees. But it's crucial to remember, as I always say to my clients, that trust is good, but control slash monitoring is even better when it comes to uh, tackling insider fraud. And at bottom line, we have even gone a step further, as when suspicious activity is detected, we use patented technology that can replay the screens to the fraud investigator. So the fraud investigator can review the employee actions screen by screen, like visual storytelling. And this has a big advantage because as I said earlier, often there's a suspicion of insider fraud, but the big challenge is finding the evidence for that insider fraud. When you can replay the screens um, that the bad actor touched, looked at when committing the fraud, then you have uh, basically all the forensic evidence you need in visual pictures about uh, who did what, when, to which data, from where, uh, and how. So um, we refer to this technology as record and replay because it's yeah precisely does that. It records and replays the usage of internal applications that hold, for example, uh, for example, sensitive or competitive information. But there's one thing I want to make very clear, John, and that is the objective here is not to monitor employees like monitoring. Uh, email content, their team chats, or internet whereabouts, or measure their productivity. Well, we understand that the importance uh, uh, we understand the importance of respecting employee privacy regulations, and our main goal is to protect the company's most valuable assets from financial theft or uh, data leaks, uh, whether they are intentional or not. So the focus is on safeguarding these assets rather than monitoring employees. So Chris, the majority of US businesses look like they're on the right track when it comes to protecting their payments. So my question is to you, my, a two-part question actually for you. First, did anything in the, in the barometers fraud section jump out at you? And second, bank account validation and verification were used by 50% of respondents, 53% use multi-factor authentication. Obviously, we want to see 100% there. But what's your general reaction to that level of protection? So the stat that stood out to me, um, it's what I've, I've talked about before, and I just love it because it's, it's success. Uh, it's the FBI's recovery asset team statistic of freezing 328 million out of 443 million in reported losses to them. This is across 1,700 incidents. So th they're hard at work. And this is kind of like a back channel team that the FBI has set up to be able to immediately freeze funds at banks in the United States when it's reported to them that 
an account has received funds due to business email account compromise fraud. To report that to the FBI, you go to ic3.gov. Uh, it's kind of a mouthful, so spell it. It's letter I, letter C, number three, dot gov. And you'll be able to report directly to that team. And that's just one of the most recent examples of our law enforcement agencies coming up with creative, fast, proactive ways to stop funds from hop, skip, jumping overseas or spidering out into a mule network of accounts to then be withdrawn across different accounts daily at the maximum limit, right? How do you, how do you withdraw a million dollars without raising suspicion? So that, that's one of the most prevalent statistics that I, I found that was, that was noted in the report. Um, to, your, to your other part of your question, um, bank account val- validation, verification, multi-factor authentication. I'll, I'll hit the first one. Um, when I think of bank account validation and verification, I want to be very specific in saying the name that you're intending to pay is the name on the account. <clears throat> a penny test, a micro deposit, those aren't, quote, validation services that protect you from fraud. That protects you from, you know, accidentally sending to a, an account that's closed or frozen and, and causing a bounce back. You really need to know the name that's on the account. So that the status 55% are using those. <clears throat> and I think when you think of those, there's a, a few in the United States. We do not have a, a regulatory confirmation of payee-like solution in the United K that was rolled out with support of legislature. We have private companies that have started consortium networks of bank account ownership information. And the reason I think maybe you see only 55% is not every bank is offering that to their corporate customers. Not every bank has that capability or integration set up yet to allow that kind of that kind of test. And so some of it is the decentralization of banking in the United States. <clears throat> You're just not going to get a blanket coverage. And you even see that with confirmation of payee. It's, it's a long-term rollout technology integration between all the banks over there to get up to speed. And so 55%, about halfway there, but even those consortium networks don't cover all of the institutions in the United States. So you have to have other ways to verify if, if a business is who they say they are, or a person is who they say they are before you remit a large payment. <clears throat> so the, the 55, 53% multi-factor authentication piece. So let's, let's kind of broad, right? So what is multi-factor authentication? To me, it's when something happens and you need a little bit of friction and to double check that it is you making sure it is you doing this action, right? And that's generally a text or push notification to your cellular phone. Um, so where, where you have multi-factor authentication should be actually in a, a multitude of different areas. Your email login from a new device, your corporate infrastructure login, You should also have it on your cell phone plan or your internet phone access from new devices. You should have those. The the fraudster's next weakest link is taking over phone systems so they can pass these codes to initiate payments and get into your bank accounts. Finally, obviously, your payment systems, your ERP systems. When I think of multi-factor authentication, it should be yes to all of these places. Um, So so 
percentages aside, you know, that's security policy 101 when it comes to multi-factor. There's a lot of discrepancy in the report between business size. So let me revisit some data. Total losses due to fraud rose significantly. U.S. businesses added $64,000 for annual fraud total, 21% bounce. Large enterprises, Chris, rose 177 grand to 43% jump. And only about 37% of that number was, was recovered. My question to you is, are there differences in how small businesses should protect against fraud versus these large and enterprise level companies? Well, that's a, that's a tough question to, to answer. I'll, I'll try and get there. Um, <clears throat> when I think of large businesses, oftentimes they're kind of unwieldy. Um, they're harder to plug all the holes in, that, in their larger ship especially when you have multiple entities, subsidiaries, divisions, decentralized payables or receivables. With medium enterprises, um, they, they may be able to kind of get a good handle on their infrastructure with and still have the means to deploy technology to secure some of that. Whereas small businesses, they often, and you find another statistic in our our, our survey, they're, they're less concerned. About 48% weren't as concerned as larger businesses. Um, and I think that's because they often rely on policies and manual dual controls, one or two people working at payables and receivables. You know, how do they protect themselves? It's generally having good policy procedures, exercising callbacks on known phone numbers is critical to verifying supplier banking information or bank changes. Those aren't going to protect you in all, all the situations. And you see those jumps of loss. I don't know if I would call it a, a large jump. It's, it's hard when you ask in a survey, even if you get a number of respondents, there could be an extremely large loss of several million or tens of millions of dollars that throws off the average. But one thing I, I wonder is, are losses due to attack volumes going up or sophisticated success kind of increases, like more sophisticated attacks. And, it, and I think that the answer is it's probably a, a little bit of both. Um, a lot of places had increases in their security budgets because of the pandemic, and they saw these nasty attempts, and so there was an investment in, in infrastructure. Um, but I think it's it's a continuation of fighting against volumetric attacks with uh, email threat protection providers to stop things from getting in and watching out for those really sophisticated attacks with technology controls to detect different types of fraud, whether it's business email account compromise, insiders that are selling information for, for extra revenue. Uh, it's a very, very tough environment to be in. And there's no one provider that can solve all of them. It's a, it's a, it's kind of a, definitely a strategy. Last question for you, and I do want to ask one more, uh, if, if that's okay. Um, you and Mark and Rude have taught me, anyway, that attitude is just as important as technology, right, we're, when we're talking about for fraud and financial crimes. So with that in mind, Chris, 70% of the, our survey um, respondents believe fraudsters are moving too fast for payment protection technology to keep up. Your reaction to that? Yeah, payment technologies, right? They're like, go, look at me. Um, I'm first to market. This is really cool. Real-time payments, they're going to be fast. Um, you could just 
look back the last five years and see how real-time payments roll out in in the United Kingdom, particularly they got clipped, spun and, and fallen down because of fraud, right? It was convenience for the consumer without a security forward approach. These same things happened in the United States with Venmo and Zelle, uh, one of the two almost going out of business because they the quarterly fraud losses were just astronomical uh, versus what they even were even estimating conservatively that they would see. Um, you have to really put that security first approach in to payment technologies now. And I think that sentiment, right? Payers feel largely like they're on their own island. Businesses are on their own little island. Who's helping them? How do I get to be part of a larger uh, network, you know, back to the mainland where everyone's working together against this? And so I think it's really important that we, we build trust with businesses by putting payment technologies in place, that security first approach. It's one of the reasons why PayModex is so successful, right? It's part of our DNA. If, if we pulled it out, we wouldn't be successful as a payment processor anymore. There would be fraud losses. Our customers wouldn't like the solution. And we it's incumbent upon us to make security not some back-end cybersecurity guy that you never see, but you hope he's got everything there, but really a day-to-day, here's what we see, here's how it's helpful for you, here's, here's pieces of information that can just help your program. Something that we're seeing um, has nothing to do with us, but you're going you're gonna to be able to find it valuable. It's those kind of things that build security trust, and it, it's critical that we keep doing that in new payment technologies. When we look at blockchain, we've got to be security first to control that kind of network. Let's swing this conversation back to the future here. So um, when our respondents were asked what will influence the next three years of payments and payments technology, fraud came up number one ahead of digitization of finance and acquisition of new payments technologies. Um, CBDCs, which have had a lot of headlines, came in fourth between 10 and 17% of our respondents um, being concerned about that. So, Rude, I want to ask you first, what do you think will influence the fraud category the most over the next, say, one to three years? Yeah, John, based on my own uh, field experience, um, I'm clearly seeing an increasing concern about insider threat as a service. And uh, this is where employees are actively being recruited uh, through social media, for example, to carry out uh, internal fraud. Uh, think about uh, disclosing confidential customer data or company information or even uh, manipulating uh, systems and data. And of course, these employees are offered uh, large amounts of money. The issue is that collusion between employees and uh, external bad actors is very difficult to detect without tooling. And that is where the opportunity is for the fraudsters. So I think the biggest danger for corporates is that still most insider frauds go undetected. And if you don't fully understand the nature and scale of the threat, then insider fraud is maybe uh, well, underreported or not reported at, at all, uh, but wrongly considered uh, less risky. There are also regulatory aspects from regulatory bodies when it comes to uh, data breaches and the protection of sensitive uh, PII data. We have seen uh, multiple examples in the news where failing to address insider risk adequately 
uh, resulted in serious fines and, and damage to a company's reputation. So I think in the next three years, more corporates will realize the importance of investing in insider risk management solutions. And uh, as, as just relying on separation of duties won't be enough to deal with insider threats uh, effectively, and in particular, insider threat as a service. So uh, to finalize my advice is uh, don't wait till it's too late. Well said. Thank you, Rude. So Mark Bish, we know overlay services are going to be a big factor. Um, tell us what you think some of the other influential things we're looking at over the next three years. I think I've already touched on uh, one of them already, which is driving um, confirmation of payee towards payer. So from, from a UK perspective, spreading the, the, the wings of the service to make sure it covers all of the channels where people can make payments. Um, but that's then just looking at it from a UK perspective. Um, we know there's a mandate from the, the EU around SEPA faster payments requiring a confirmation of payee style service. Um, certainly people have learned from the experience in the UK where we've got uh, hit really hard from a fraud perspective uh, and, and making sure those per, you know, those services are in place. So, you know, being part of that service um, of learning from the things that we've learned in the UK and, and assisting that to, to roll out uh, from a European perspective. And, and also in other countries where, where faster payments are becoming something that they're looking to, to implement as well. Okay, interesting. Chris Gerdy, you get the last word. Peek in your crystal ball for us and tell us what we should be looking out for in fraud. I think... We're going to be seeing the digital identity verification and a continuous version of that kind of come out into our culture. Our culture from banking to our personal lives, everything from uh, the pre-transaction to send money to someone, to signing up for a new loan, or even to logging into your email. Your digital identity, who you are, how you interact, especially with platforms that involve your business and sending millions of dollars is going to be part and part of our infrastructure, who we are, how we identify ourselves online, and that's going to make us more secure over time. And it's just going to build and build so that our interactions, when securely shared with our banks and between our critical platforms, will help protect both of our both of our businesses and our personal lives. That's going to be a critical increase. It's something that you could see happening in the U.S today with legislature about infrastructure and cybersecurity, digital identity verification. It's going to be a commonplace in the next decade. All right. Thank you. I want to thank my guests. That was a great episode. And that is a wrap for the Payments Podcast. Uh, I'd like to thank our guests, Chris Gerda, Rude Grotens, and Mark Bish from Bottom Line. See you next time on your favorite podcast platform. We can be found on Apple, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Thanks again. from Bottom Line Technologies.